You're listening to Nakedly Examined Music. My name is Mark Lintzenmeyer. To hear more, check out nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. My guest for episode 26 is Pat Doty, a tuba soloist, chamber musician, composer, arranger, and private instructor pursuing a Master of Music at the University of Wisconsin-Madison right now. You're listening to his Concerto for Tuba and Orchestra Movement 1 beginning... Performed this June by the Middleton Community Orchestra, he and his wife Bridget Doty also in 2015 released an album called Dare to Entertain that mixes tuba music with piano and vocal music. So Pat started as a singer-songwriter, writing on piano while singing, but he was also an orchestral tuba player, and gradually through college these two worlds connected. So now he writes pop music that's scored and classical music with pop sensibility. We're going to be discussing a couple tracks off that recent album, Mendota, a tuba duet, then Love for My Own, one of the vocal pieces, and then you'll hear the entirety of and we'll talk through the third and last movement for this concerto for tuba and orchestra, and conclude by listening to something called Disco Tubas. For more information, please check out patdoty.com. Here's Pat. Thank you for doing this. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. I've just been spending time with the concerto which I will have just played the very beginning of movement number one for the folks so we can get that in their heads so that when they hear for our third song, let's tackle the third movement of that, then I'm sure they'll focus right in at the very end of that when you reintroduce that theme. Mm, Yes. But let's start with Simpler first. So your album here, the one that is online, the Dare to Entertain 2015, credited to you and your wife, it's a nice mix of classical and pop stuff, I guess. Although even the pop stuff, as we'll see when we explicitly hit a vocal and piano tune in song two, still sounds very classically influenced. Just the fact that you have scores for all these. Yeah. My wife and I both are classically trained. It's definitely been our background. We just also have other influences. I have a strong pop and rock and roll influence. So we're really trying to merge all those things. She does a lot of Irish folk songs. You hear that in her voice a lot, I think. Well, let's start with the simplest one. So I know your shtick as a classical composer has been, there is not enough tuba music out there. Partly there's not enough tuba music out there, but almost more importantly, the tuba music that is out there and readily accessible just is not really as fun as I would like tuba music Uh to be. (laughs) And I don't mean that as any offense to big composers or the people that play the music. It's mostly because tuba music started being composed relatively very late compared to other music. You know, you have all sorts of romantic string music and things like that. All sorts of different genres, you could say, within classical music that you can pick from. And all we have for tuba is basically from about like 1950 or whenever before that on. So you get a lot of stuff that's experimental and you get a lot of stuff that's trying to be really technically challenging and show off the tuba so that people can get a taste of what we do as tuba players. But I think sometimes what gets lost in that is just this idea that music can just be fun and accessible and that that's okay. (laughs) That's been a big part of my goal is to make more music for the tuba, but also to bring it around and include those other aspects of music that I really love. Yeah, so I think this first example, this Mendota, so this is a duet. It's F-tuba and C-tuba. I see one is longer than the other. I wasn't aware of the difference. They don't look different. They're just slightly different sizes. You actually have four keys of tubas. You have mm-hmm. F, E-flat, C, and B-flat, and then the euphonium's technically a tuba as well. But basically, the F-tuba is a higher horn. It's a little shorter, and you'll use it for more solo stuff, which is why the top line in this duet's going to play the F-tuba. The C-tuba is what you generally play in an orchestra if you're in America. 
it's lower, it's boomier, beefier, not quite as strident of a soloistic sound. What does a typical tuba player learn to play? Do they just kind of pick one, most just stick with the C, or is it everybody learns all of them, or what combination of those? People will start in high school or middle school playing a B-flat tuba. And then, for me at least, it was right when I left to go to college that I picked up the C horn. The reason why that's important is just that when you start in college, your biggest goal is to become an orchestral player, which is another thing that I'm a little bit different from my colleagues in, <laughs> that went to school for tuba. That's not necessarily my goal anymore to be an orchestral player. I like the solo work a lot better. But you come in thinking, oh, I'm going to play orchestral music. And so you want to learn the C because that's the standard orchestral horn. Just because the people writing for orchestra don't want to have to detune everything when they transpose everything as they write it down? or. <laughs> Actually, it's more of a player's thing because all of the tubas are still written in concert pitch. Oh, okay. So it's not like saxophones. Right. So we do all the work transposing ourselves. Ah, wow. Okay. (laughs) You'll play the C tuba for a while. And then generally speaking, at least for me, halfway through college, I picked up the F tuba. And that was just to get more ability on the solo stuff. The solo music is generally too high to be comfortably played soloistically on a C tuba. And you're just going to get a more melodic sound, I guess, more of a vocal sound. So if you're playing a John Philip Sousa march, besides the sousaphone, of course, is that higher or lower than the tuba? I, I... That's the lowest. All right. So that's the kind of horn you learn to play in high school, a concert horn, but it'd be a B flat like the sousaphone. Okay. Is it marching band stuff typically written for that as the lowest thing, whereas opposed to symphony orchestra? The sousaphone is really the only thing you use for marching band and it's typically only in b flat it was created for that purpose and it stuck <laughs> it's very rudimentary i know but but there are b flat tubas that are not in fact sousaphone don't have the sousaphone oh, shape right okay all right and generally i mean those look just like a c tuba if you're a tuba player you'll notice the small differences in the tubing on the bottom basically just the main tuning slide is sideways instead of up and down <laughs> But to the untrained eye, they would pretty much look the same. I mean, if I put a B-flat tuba and an F-tuba in front of somebody that doesn't know tuba, they would probably know the difference. If I told them one was higher and smaller, (laughs) they could pick out which one was smaller. (laughs) But generally looking at it, they're going to look pretty much the same. Just a big series of tubes. (laughs) All right. Well, now the listeners will know the difference between the two, the higher and the lower part here. The high is the F-tuba. So this is Mendota, again, from the one album, Dare to Entertain. Here it is. Thank you. 
So I see what you're talking about in terms of being classically influenced. But, you know, when I was in composition school in college in the early 90s, there was very much an emphasis on you can't do things that kind of sound like Mozart. It has to be at whatever level of experimentation. It boggles my mind why there would still be experimentation by that point, given that, you know, by 1910, you'd already hit 12 tone and like how much weirder can you get? It seemed by the 50s, you know, we'd already gotten into John Cage. So is part of the dare to entertain part is that, yeah, I can write a damn melody here that could be a nice TV show theme song. If it is the classical connection would have to be Mozart or some older vocabulary. That's sort of what I was talking about with the music for tuba all being in this last century. We hit composers pretty late and around a time where, like you said, we had sort of hit the pinnacle of experimentation. And ever since then, it's been sort of this fight to keep doing something new and different. And sometimes just the fact that we didn't have that whole core of these different things to go against. The whole idea of experimentation being to sort of go against the exact same thing over and over that is perceived in older music, maybe. I really wanted to write stuff that is just like when I write for my wife to sing. You know, I don't want to write a tuba piece that isn't something that if it had words, I would feel comfortable putting in front of a singer or that I wouldn't feel comfortable, you know, putting out in into the public and not just to a tuba friendly crowd. So that's really the goal with all of this stuff. And Mendota is definitely a classic example within my stuff of keeping it pretty simple but there's still quite a bit going on harmonically and there's a lot of different areas of tension and things like that but it sticks with this really simple and i think really beautiful melody throughout the whole thing does a melody for that kind of thing come just walking around humming or is it you have tuba in mouth as it were and this is something you come up on that or is it paper in hand with piano composition composition so it all started for me composing actually when i was in high school and i was writing songs for myself to sing with piano and when i did that i would always be sitting at the piano and just making something up on the fly and then seeing what sticks right and it'd be both piano and the voice at the same time, writing the things and writing the lyrics at the same time. And I assume at that point, it was to the extent you're writing anything down, it was writing down chords? Usually be chords and lyrics, yeah. Okay. And that was it. Sometimes I'd write down music. And when I was in high school, I was kind of lazy. I rarely even wrote down all of the chords and lyrics. It was usually a pretty basic writing down <laughs> of the stuff. When I was in college, and it actually wasn't until I was a grad student, it was just a few years ago, I decided to start composing again. I hadn't gone to college for composition. I went for performance. And my first year of college, a guy named Oyston Bozvik. I don't know if you've heard his name, but if you haven't, you should look him up at some point and I'd encourage everyone to take a peek. He's somebody that's been a professional tuba soloist as his career for quite some time now. And he's doing some really wonderful stuff with really beautiful melodies and things like that. But he came to UW and he did a concert for us and he talked a little bit about his process and his journey and everything. And it really inspired me to start writing. And so the first thing I did was to start writing for tuba. And Mendota was actually a song that I had initially written many, many years ago for me to sing with piano. And it was a song about Lake Mendota. Using that as an example of how things can be beautiful in the world without having to add a lot of stuff. There's a line in it about how women don't have to wear excessive amounts of makeup. The line is stage makeup, implying like really excessive, you know, people needing to look a certain way. People don't have to do stuff like that to be beautiful and to have their place in the world. And the line is... This world is beautiful without the additives. Just walk by Mendota and you'll see. It was just sort of beautiful idea and a really pretty melody. 
And some people have suggested to me that the melody may have come from a TV show theme, but I don't remember which one. I was thinking that it could be used for a TV show theme, and it's certainly like a very 1-4-5-ish chord progression that I go for. Exactly. I thought it was a really pretty, really simple thing that could be made into a duet. So I wrote that down. I did that right into my computer. <laughs> I just had that melody from the chorus in my head, and I sat down and made up the accompaniment part. I'm not really a compliment. They're pretty equal, the two parts, but... But you have in mind pretty clearly, like, what are the comfortable ranges of the two instruments? And so are you... Did you have in mind that you were going to write for F-tuba and C-tuba? Or was it just that as you're writing, like, oh, okay, this will fit a little better? Yeah, so that's the one nice thing when I'm writing for tuba is I have a really comfortable understanding of what's going to be comfortable at different stages and specifically at the highest level of playing what's going to be comfortable when i'm writing stuff for f tuba i tend to push the limits on the high register there's a couple of spots in mendota where you hear that a little bit <laughs> there's the one spot where it really builds up and there's a very high sustained note yep and the c tuba i don't usually push the register as much i kind of work within the low to middle the meat and potatoes register the last note is that super low A. Is that the lowest note it can play? or It's not the lowest note. I, the tuba can go pretty low, and all the tubas can really go quite low. Is it one of those things where I know, like, if on a saxophone, you know, if you really pinch up your amateur, you can go higher than is allowed on a wind instrument. Is it the same thing where you're doing something comparable with your mouth to get it a lower octave than you'd normally play in? You do do that. That note's actually a pretty comfortable low range. You could go more than an octave below that. In that range, you'd be doing what you're talking about, definitely. <laughs> you really have to loosen up and you really have to slow down your air and all sorts of things to try and get really low. But yeah, you could go pretty comfortably a sixth below that on a C tuba, be the fundamental pitch. That'd be pretty comfortable. And then from there on down, so that'd be the C six or seven. Below that A, yeah. Yeah, that would be the lowest pretty comfortable note. And then below that, you have to start <laughs> stretching the valve length. <laughs> That's what you run into with the tuba, is that when you're higher, the notes are a little closer together in terms of the frequency, and then when they're lower, they're much farther apart in terms of frequency, but the tubing doesn't change. The first valve is always the same length. Now, looking at the score for this, I see you've got a lot of dynamics written here. I'm not hearing as much. Is it that the tuba is just so loud overall that the dynamic range is a little bit limited, that when you put piano, it's still... There are a couple things going on there. One is just that you oftentimes aren't going to hear the quite as strong of dynamics from what you're writing when you write for tuba. And so knowing that and being a tuba player that constantly is not playing up to the bar of the dynamics that are written, <laughs> I decided to sort of exaggerate. I also, this was one of the first things that I actually wrote down for tuba. Oh. And so when I was writing it, I was thinking, oh, I really need to put these in. And I was afraid of it seeming too simple and everything. And when we started playing it, the biggest contrast is that triple forte that's written. I think it's measure 51. And the thing there is that we're already holding a really high note in the F tuba part. There's a minor ninth right before that, leading into an octave, then leading down into a minor seventh there, and you get this resolution. So it's already building. And just the fact that as the player, you're holding this really high sustained note, you're going to need to crescendo in order to stay at a reasonable dynamic anyway. So part of that, honestly, I would say is just that my dynamics I wrote were just more intense than I really wanted. <laughs> It's something that can happen also for me when I'm when I'm the one writing it and then I'm also the one playing one of the parts on it. Not always going to end up going in exactly the same direction. Talk a little bit about in coming up with the harmonic line here. Is it just a matter you said you wrote this on the computer that it was a matter of writing down some notes and then playing them back. So it's really writing with the computer rather than anything else in terms of coming up with the exact harmony here. Is that the process for this? I had the melody fully in my head. And I mean, the bass line basically follows the 
harmonic structure of what the original song would have been. Although interestingly, kind of off, you'll change an eighth note before the other or something, so that when you do then start going rhythmically entirely in unison a little later in the song, then it's kind of striking because you've got a little counterpoint, a little extra complexity out of that. That's one thing I've always really enjoyed is putting extra rhythmic intrigue (laughs) into my music. And that's part of what allows me to write something pretty simple like this. I mean, melodically, it's not particularly intense. There are some spots where harmonically it's sort of intricate, but for the most part, it stays pretty... I mean, like you said, it stays sort of like a movie show theme or something like that. Something that you can hear over and over again and you're not going to get tired of it, but it's also not going to bog you down in a 15-page essay. (laughs) Right. I mean, you do have a couple places where the harmonics change up a little bit. That measure 58 where you throw in the G natural there, there's triplets going on the bass there. And I think there was one place earlier where around bar 20 where you kind of have a little turnaround where it jumps out of the key for a little bit. Is this, again, kind of trial and error, or is there music theory driving this? There's definitely music theory driving it. I generally don't really sit and plan out the theory that's going to drive drive what's going on. A lot of it just sort of happens naturally. I think both those examples you're talking about actually were completely derived from wanting to do a chromatic stepwise motion between one thing that was right in the key and another thing that wasn't was mm. right in the key. That section I measured... 20 most of that was just trying to find a different way to lead into that e and g sharp on in 23 and then same thing the g natural in 58 is really a chromatic passing tone you know from f sharp to g sharp there what i did was raise the d to d sharp to lead again into the the e later on i mean that's really what's going on we're sort of tonicizing five there So stuff like that will sort of just come out of the woodwork. It's not something that I sit down and plan out ahead of time. I'll get to that point and I'll think, all right, what do I want to do? Do I want to build here? Do I want to come back here? If I want to build, do I want to do it by changing the dynamic or do I want to do it by increasing tension in the harmony or what sorts of things are available? And there's a lot of different ways you can do that. You can add tension and release tension or drive or pull back, things like that. And right after that, where you've got the two horns going back and forth doing the riff, how does the riff go there? <laughs> it's just an arpeggio, right? Yeah, it's just a, yeah, it's just a down in the seventh arpeggio. <laughs> So that sounds particularly classical in that, obviously, what pop music, especially pop music that involves strings or, you know, the kind of thing you hear in movie soundtracks is very much derived from old classical music. But the element of repetition that you get in Bach, where you're kind of threshing out the different themes and it stretches out over a longer period. I mean, this is obviously not a long song. This is a pop song size thing. But that little passing back and forth thing seemed like a gesture out of the, you know, that's actually slightly foreign now, sort of simple and straight ahead as it seems like it should be, that it is kind of extending it in a certain way that you might not hear in a TV theme song or something. I disagree a little bit that that sort of repetition is lost in pop music. I think it's actually part of the core of what pop music is now. And it gets lost because it sounds so simple usually when it happens in pop music. But I heard, I think it was Paul Simon in an interview maybe a year, year and a half ago, he was talking about a new song. I think the song American Tune. I don't know if you've heard that, but mm-hmm. he had just, I think, just written that. And they asked him about his process. 
And he talked about wanting to use repetition, but never too much. You know, it always has to transform right throughout. And he said something about how he never wanted to use the same note in the chord three times in a row or something along those lines and made a couple of broad stroke statements about how we would use repetition and stuff like that. And that actually was pretty moving to me, the idea that he would stand there and talk about the fact that there's this repetition, but then you have to go somewhere. And I mean, maybe he's uh, the exception that proves the rule. (laughs) He's always written pretty intricate stuff, even though it sounds pretty simple. Maybe it's just a matter of having a solo instrument at all, that that's kind of a foreign thing in pop music. You could have a voice that's doing something repetitive or have it and then the background vocals answer or whatever, two guitars answering each other. But you always have stuff going in the background. You don't just wipe it out. Yeah, and I think that's one of those places where I'm really bringing back in my classical background. (laughs) I'm really not afraid to push the envelope of what is allowed in pop music either. Mm -hmm. And to say, all right, I'm going to write something that will be accessible to a lot of people, but I'm also not going to make something that's just so simple that it could have been written by anybody. So I know you're like selling the scores for these online. Is, Is your hope that it's tuba students across the country are looking for material and they'll run across you and want to play this as a recital piece, that sort of direct to consumer model, as opposed to, I don't know, that seems as a, not only a lofty goal, but to become part of the canon seems as a lofty goal. Or that if you were, I'm again, kind of channeling the messages I was getting as a composition person, that if I was going to say, ah, forget what contemporary classical music <laughs> is doing right now and just write something that is fun, then I'm not writing for the Academy anymore. I'm writing for people. And so, of course, we understand that you've released this on Spotify, you released it as an actual album and trying to connect with fans. But sort of how does that connect with you connecting with other tuba players and trying to enrich the tuba available music to play? There's sort of two answers to that. One's in the immediate and one's more long term. Of course, the long term goal would be that tuba players would accept this style of writing the style of music as being just as important as something that's written for that scholastic reason Mm -hmm. for academia. But I didn't start writing music to write academically. (laughs) I honestly kind of started writing music to push back against academia a little bit in terms of the music that we were playing. I got a little bit tired in the tuba repertoire of stuff that was so academic and of feeling like all our recitals were academic before they were crowd pleasing, things like that. And I guess in the short term, I want to bring a lot of people into the studio with me. You know, I want to put on concerts and involve other tuba players on a personal level. For example, my good friend Jacob Guri played the C tuba part on Mendota. I want to involve a lot of people. And once we have the capital, we're planning a couple of different CDs. Specifically, we're planning a chamber music CD with all new brass quintet and tuba quartet music. There's like a dozen or so pieces I'm ready to record as soon as we can afford it. We want to add to the repertoire in terms of the written music, but also in terms of making it more accessible to the broader community. Since you bring up the recording, yeah, tell me a little bit about the process here. Is this just, you guys have learned it and you rent a studio somewhere, or this is not home recording, is it? No. Okay. We recorded at a place called Paradigm Studios. Oh, that's where I've recorded my stuff, yeah. We worked with Jake there, and it was really good, a really good experience. That's where we did all the stuff for Day to Entertain, and we plan to continue working with him. Until eventually we want to build our own studio, but that's probably at least 10 years down the road. And I imagine it's a pretty quick experience in that, apart from maybe he's not used to miking these kind of things. But uh... <laughs> Yeah, so that part took a while. He's not used to miking tuba. I don't think very many studios will be. I think there's maybe one place in Madison where they do a lot of it. But yeah, he wasn't really used to that, and we weren't necessarily that used to going in and wanting to record something like this. The first thing we recorded was actually impression number one. Mm-hmm. It's the first track in the CD. 
And I went in initially thinking that I wanted to go in and I wanted to play without a click track and I wanted it to be really like a concert. You know, I wanted it to be live and I wanted to do it in one shot and knock it out. And my eyes were definitely bigger than my <laughs> my ability in that moment because we went in and it was just it was sort of a struggle to get comfortable with the situation, not being somebody that's ever really recorded a lot on the tuba. I've done it some singing and playing piano and things like that, but I'd never been in the studio trying to record my own thing on tuba, something I didn't really have a framework for aside from what I had in my head. And I very quickly realized certain things about what was required in order to make it sound good on there in terms of the tone, in terms of the sound, but also in terms of getting the intensity that I want when I want it and things like that. And I think by the time we were doing Mendota, we had pretty much figured out the miking and we had pretty much figured out what sort of dynamics we comfortably wanted to use and without blowing out the mics yes right right and so there are issues with that and then we also figured out how much did the software help out with like software dynamics like if say you don't want to play too soft because you don't want to totally lose the sound Mm -hmm. on the mic you know but then you maybe you want to take off just a smidge here and there things like that so we learned a lot about that. We didn't track it together. We did two separate tracks. So for this one, I'll tell you a little about the the process. We recorded one live version together with a click track that was just our bass. This is what we're going to play along with. <laughs> yep. And then I had Jacob going and do the second part, the C-tuba part, by himself, playing along with that initial version. And we went through, and it took a little while. I don't remember exactly how long, but it took a little while doing all these different takes and everything to get his part down. And then we cut out the first one and I played just along with his and did the same process. And then at the end, we went through and fine tuned different things. And it took a little while, but I think this was one of the shorter recording sessions, I think, on that CD. Let's move to a completely different arrangement, but still on the same album. And I assume recorded in the same way that you went into Paradigm to do this love for my own. Yes, yes, definitely. So this is uh, your wife, Bridget Doty. And so you're doing the piano here or is it? I thought it might have even been programmed. (laughs) I wasn't really sure because it's very exact. I did the piano. We did do a little bit of fidgeting and fixing with the piano part. I play in very much a pop or rock style. Mm -hmm. So when I write, it's actually a little bit awkward for me to be actually writing down so somebody else can play my piano stuff especially. And so when we went in, we wanted to find a balance between the way that I play versus still wanting it to fit with the classical idea of this CD. We didn't want to totally stray from that. And there are other songs where the piano is a little more free to do what it wants. Well, I know you say your wife has an Irish singing background, but she's got like a spot on classical voice. Absolutely. And even when you sing on one of the other tracks here on the Just a Person, it doesn't sound like you're trying to do a pop guy voice. It sounds like you're trying to do a something that is in the same universe as opera, not, you know, as a like a non-opera singers doing opera vocal cadences, something like that. If that's That's another spot where we're falling back on training in the classical realm mm-hmm. and concepts in the pop realm or concepts in the folk realm or I think one good example, if people want to go and listen to it on this CD of the more folksy side of it, I maybe folksy is not quite the right term for it. Comparatively. (laughs) Comparatively is the song Teapot. It's got a really like Irish folk tune sort of background, and it still has that really piercing and extremely accurate voice behind it, but it's definitely in a style that's more free and moves around a little more. All right, well, let's play Love for My Own, and then we'll talk more about it.
the first thing I noticed was kind of comparing how you set up the melody in the beginning, where you have in your right hand, you're doing a triplet thing. And then when the vocal actually comes in to do that melody, then it's quarter notes. It's slower that you're mm-hmm. sort of throwing in a variation right there. So it's not like you're as pedantic as I'm just playing the melody exactly as the vocal is about to doing it. You're doing something a little fancier. I wanted it to sound free. I really wanted that feeling of the bass note in the beginning just by itself. It sort of just sets up the tonality. <laughs> and then I really wanted something that was simple. I mean, it's just two notes at a time, almost contrapuntal. Mm-hmm. But I also wanted it to really be sort of interesting. So right in this little intro, you get not just the melody with a different rhythm, but you also get a little bit of the tension that comes in later on in the song. You know, there's a building and coming back throughout the song. And you get a little bit of that, like just going into measure four and then moving on into measure six, where you started to get these suspensions that are resolving one after another. It's very simple writing, but it gives you a little bit of that tension that you're going to find later. So tell me more about what your approach to writing something like this is. It seems like You're writing it in the way that you would write a pop song, singing and playing, but then it has this transition where you actually go and notate it and add all these little details, or even just how would the the vocal change between what might be in your head to what you put on the paper for Bridget to sing? Right. Well, I actually wrote this in the same way that I've written a lot of my stuff, which is that I was working a shift at a golf course. And while I was walking around and doing different things, I was starting to come up with this idea. And I had a certain concept in mind of what I wanted the lyrics to be about and what I wanted the tune to go. But over the course of several hours of just kind of mulling it over in the back of my mind, I had a pretty solid idea of the melody. And then I I went home and the first thing I did was I sat down and tried to recreate it with the piano, which is always a little bit different than (laughs) what you've got going on in your head. But I sat down and started to come up with ideas for the accompaniment and ideas about how it would go and figuring out how to deal with like the third verse where the lyrics are just taken from the other two verses, just sort of summing up. I started to put together what this song is going to be all together. And then when I decided to actually write it down, it was just a totally different direction because now I'm sitting down and I'm playing through in one hand on the piano and then typing into finale with another and trying to figure out a way that I can get pretty close to what I'm playing without necessarily giving everybody the tools to sound exactly like my live show. Yeah, well, and that seems to be the missing element in what the classical background is adding here is that the process you're talking about for coming up with the song is not too different from what you know somebody doing a pop song would do, but just then actually having to sit down and instead of it being you interacting with the performance over time as you play it live a lot, or you interacting with a recording device as you're sort of figuring out measure for measure. It's actually having to put it to paper seems to add, I don't know, a layer of extra thought that goes into it. It adds a certain amount of a certain amount of precision that's needed and a certain amount of looking at it from the point of view of the performer instead of just the composer. So it's not just for me anymore. You know, it's it's really easy to fall into the trap as a singer-songwriter or a performer-composer of writing just for yourself and saying, okay, well, I need this to fit for my live show or I need this to fit for my CD, you know, or anything like that. And then other people can do with it what they will. <laughs> I have a certain amount of that, but I also wanted to make sure that Having somebody that's less experienced with my style or less experienced in general or maybe has gone in a totally different direction in terms of their own career, they would be able to look at it and say, all right, here's the information he's giving me and here's what I want to do with it. And I always try not to give so much that people feel restrained at all. I get in trouble a lot with especially 
my orchestral writing and my stuff that is more classical for under articulation. But what I've found over my time of working with different pieces is that I actually really enjoy the process of having a group work out what they want something to sound like. And I find it frustrating and personally when somebody like really excessively notates and says like, all right, I need it to be exactly this dynamic and go up to this. And then I need exactly these articulations and then writes an extra little notes to say exactly how they want their articulations done and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I see if you're doing a whole string section like that, yes, you want to indicate exactly which notes are legato and which notes, you know, it's nothing left up to interpretation here. But I know it's even in the performance here that you've got dynamics going just measure to measure in the piano part that are not written here. It's just the normal subtleties that you would get if you were playing it. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff that whether it was just I didn't feel it was necessary to write in the part at the time of writing it or whether it was something that just totally changed in how I performed it when I played it in the studio or I can't speak to which one of those specifically happened in any given spot. <laughs> but things definitely changed in the studio. Like the strings at the end of Love For My Own weren't supposed to be there initially. Sure, that come in in the middle that it was. It just seems like there's a gap here. We need to <laughs> layer something over it. It was actually, it happened in, in the studio. We had talked a little bit about maybe adding a, a cello line as a counter melody to the voice or something like that, adding it about halfway through. <laughs> and then when we got in the studio and got to the point where we were done recording the rest of the stuff, Bridget said to me, like, hey, do you want to do that cello part? I was like, oh, yeah. And then we started working on it, and I was like, you know, we should probably just put in a full little five-string parts, because <laughs> why not? <laughs> and so I actually sat down and I played each one of them, just made them up on the spot from a keyboard. So those were put in digitally because in the studio in that moment, we didn't have access to four. <laughs> well, yeah, no, I figured that it was digitally, but it surprises me that it's four distinct parts and not just, oh, I played some chords during these sections. Yeah, it's five distinct parts. There's two violin parts, a cello, a viola, and a bass part. And they were each put in as if I had been sitting down and penning this harmonic thing. What I did was I just played the bass and then I went on and played the cello and we went back and did the viola and on and on. And then at the end, we went back and looked and said, all right, well, this harmony worked out. This one didn't. Let's change this and keep that and did a little bit of fidgeting. Now, I noticed another score to recording difference around measure 43. I see the, over, uh, the silly little poem. You've got just for this one measure, like a whole mess of 16th notes come in that I heard nowhere on the recording. Was that the kind of thing that like, oh, no, that was a little too much. Or I just don't know if I can play this at the time. Well, I think that specifically... We had certain notes that were popping out a little bit in my playing of it and certain notes that were lost. And what we ended up doing was just overemphasizing that difference. So I think all the notes are actually there. Oh, okay. It's just lose a few of them. Those sorts of spots where I'm writing something that is technically a little bit more challenging and adds just a lot more notes. Like it's all of a sudden there's these this little slew of 16th notes. And when I was writing, honestly, part of what was going on is that I had we go from all I have, you have these these dotted half notes, it's sort of a long thing, and then silly little poem, all quarter notes. And I wanted it to be stretching and pulling back just a little bit. And what I was going for was the idea that the piano keeps you moving while the voice pulls back a little bit. And it's just one of those things that just changes a little bit from performance to performance. And then when you get in the studio, it's the way that you wrote it is exactly the way you want to do it. That's <laughs> just interesting to me that you ended up putting this and the tuba stuff on the same 
album, <laughs> as opposed to it sounds like with this chamber thing that you're going to put together, it, you're not going to have a bunch of chamber songs and then throw one of these on, right? Is that just because like that's the material you had and you kind of just want to present your whole, this is my creative palette for this album? That is part of it. This sort of runs the gamut of the stuff that we've been doing in terms of styles, with one exception, and that's that we didn't get anything that was really scored in a very pop setting. That's something we haven't really done yet on a, on a recording. So that'll be one of our next things. But our goal was really to put together something that's sort of a mixtape. It's sort of a hodgepodge of all the different things we do, because we don't see anything as being really exclusive of the other ideas. Like the classical stuff I really see as being accessible and the more pop focused stuff I really see as being nuanced and academic in a way. There's a lot more going on and going into the process than there might be for a normal singer songwriter. <laughs> It's funny that you're saying that you're getting accused of under-notating, yet if you're trying to get whatever the modern equivalent of Whitney Houston to sing this song or something now, if you're trying to sell this, like, the fact that you have she music at all is a, a terrific advance and seems like very constricting in terms of if somebody really wanted to sing this like you know and just gave it to a different original keyboardist they might be very grateful that you had written all this out but it could just come back as a totally you know you've got the melody and you've got the basic feel but the keyboard part is totally different and like that is just par for the course if you're talking about i wrote a pop song and now other people are going to cover it of course they're not going to play exactly what you did in your left hand and your right hand when they're doing that but again this seems like you're trying to provide by selling the score by pushing it out this way you're trying to provide a way to play this more or less verbatim i guess has anybody done that <laughs> that you know about yet <laughs> not done it verbatim we've had maybe four or five different pianists play the accompaniment oh all with Bridget singing oh, okay. up to now. I mean, this is a pretty young score. But we've had several different people play the piano part, and they've always been a little bit different. And that's happened with any of my pieces. Like when I, for example, the tuba stuff that's tuba and piano, I did the piano on the recording, but obviously I can't do both of them in a live setting. And so we always have, whether it's my accompanist that I work with usually or whether it's somebody else for a specific concert, it's always going to be a little bit different. And there's always things that I write in there that are just a little bit beyond what's reasonable to ask of a piano player, <laughs> mostly because I'm trying to pen what it is that I'm playing just off of the top of my head, sort of off the cuff. <laughs> and then sometimes when you try to put that into specific notes, it ends up being something that's awkward. Or Well, you know, it's even the, the second to last measure of this piece, you've got your right hand doing triplets and your left hand doing eighth notes <laughs> you know, at the same time. It's a little beyond what you'd do for a pop song, usually, in the <laughs> in the piano part. I'm not somebody that's going to listen to, say, if somebody else recorded this or performed this. And that's happened with some of my tuba stuff. Where I've had other people that performed it, different tuba player, different pianist. And if I hear something that's a little bit different, whether it's a nuance in terms of the dynamics or in terms of articulation or whether they slow down or speed up at different spots than I do, or even if they change some notes, you know, if something doesn't quite come out exactly the way I wrote it, you know, if they want to do a different kind of leading tone or something, or if they happen to fall onto a different note or they miss something and then recover, I'm not the kind of person that's going to be particularly upset if things are changed or things are different. Because I think the beautiful thing about music and about live performances is that it's always different. And I think that's one of the things that I started to get a little bit tired of in school for music is that I was always being pressed to do things the same way as somebody else, whether it's a colleague of mine or, or an idol of mine or an idol of a teacher or anything like that. It's always here, look at how this person did it. Now, if you don't do it exactly that way, you've made a mistake and you know, 
it's sort of that competition mentality, and it's been brought to pretty much everything we do now, it seems like, at least in my experience in music school. And for me, my own music is not about having something that's going to be exactly the same every time. I want there to be this framework, so like a classical pianist could pick this up and they'd play it comfortably. Sure. It's not just, here's chords and here's a melody and make something up. <laughs> Even though, like, for me, that's what I would prefer if I was reading somebody's new piece. I'd almost prefer to be able to make up my own part based on the melody and the chords, because that's just the background that I have. That you're more of a composer slash player than a pianist. Yeah, and I also didn't go to school for piano. I mean, I went for two and played piano on the side and started to get stronger with it. And I mean, now I play at a, at a reasonably high level. It's not that I'm uncomfortable reading the music. It's just that I really prefer to have my own say in what's going on. <laughs> Which is maybe pretty selfish in some situations, but... <laughs> well, let's move to the... Speaking of live situations, so <laughs> folks have already heard the very beginning of the Concerto for Tuba and Orchestra, or Piano, and now here's Movement 3, creatively entitled End. So let's set this up. Tell us a little about the experience. This is your first whole orchestra concerto, is that right? Yeah, this is my first concerto. This is my first work for orchestra, actually, at all. And for my first one, I chose to bite off a 20-minute tuba concerto <laughs> so this is the performance actually that i was in the audience for this is why we're doing this the middleton community orchestra was performing the steve kerr conductor june 2016 so was this the first time apart from rehearsals this is the first and only and last recording slash performance or tell a little about the history of first of all how they agreed to do it <laughs> yeah this was not the premiere of the piece broadly, as you said in the in the title in brackets. It says or piano. Okay. And I've played it. I had played it a couple times with piano. <laughs> that doesn't make the orchestral premiere any less important because it was still the orchestral premiere. This was the first time it had been performed or rehearsed or anything. So this was my orchestral premiere as a composer, just overall. <laughs> first time one of my pieces has been played by a full orchestra, and it was really exciting for me. I had played with that group for maybe two years, I think. I, I was subbing for them off and on. And I sent an email one day and said, hey, I've got this awesome new tuba concerto that I'd really love to have premiered. Would you guys be interested in being the first to play it? And they said, hey, actually, this is great timing because we're working on our program for next year and we would be interested. So we got together and talked about the details and I showed them the score and I gave them the MIDI recording that I had from Finale. Gotcha. So they had an idea of what it would sound like. And then obviously they had to put in the human element. <laughs> so they had an idea of what was going on musically and, and they knew who I was and they knew that it'd be fun for us all to work together. And they decided to put it on the program and did it as part of that brass extravaganza alongside that horn concerto and alongside a couple of, you know, obviously very well-known composers. <laughs> yeah. It's really exciting for me and I hope for them and for the audience too. So this is you fronting it with another guy playing euphonium as the harmony instrument and parts of it. And then, so xylophone was the third movement little surprise, right? Is that? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I could say a little bit about that part. The original score for this was the piano score. I decided that instead of writing a full orchestral piece and then making a piano reduction, which almost inevitably will end up not quite capturing everything that's going on, I decided to write the piano part first with the idea of it being something that would give me all of the material that I needed for the orchestral score. And then I went through and wrote the orchestral score loosely based on the, the piano version. So the piano was not going dig it, dig it, dig it, dig it. Exactly. There were definitely changes, but that marimba part is actually a, a piano solo in the concerto, the version with piano. 
it's actually almost verbatim from the piano score. It's just that I took out some of the extra left-hand stuff because they can't use like six mallets at one time <laughs> and play that fast. And she did a really great job with dealing with what I had written. And after we had gotten together for the first time, I changed a couple of things about the marimba part just because they were too much like piano a little bit and didn't quite work. <laughs> that was the thought was this was meant to be a little piano solo in the middle of this thing. I didn't necessarily want to just give it to the violins or something like that who would be comfortable with a 16th note run like that because even though that would have sounded really nice i mean it wouldn't have the same splash of having this percussive instrument just kind of going crazy (laughs) or having an actual piano right or having an actual piano right and having the piano would have been a great idea except for the fact that i didn't know how to make the piano fit for the entire piece Mm -hmm. and i wouldn't want somebody to have to have like a grand piano out and make room for that if there's not going to be like a piano solo like a big soloist and everything and so i thought about what to do and i you know i thought, well, what if I put marimba in there? <laughs> and so I did in the finale version, and I listened back to the, the MIDI, which obviously isn't a super great representation of what it's really going to sound like, but I got an idea of what it would add, and I just really fell in love with it, honestly. <laughs> Let's play it before we talk some more. So yes, this last movement is only about seven minutes long. Don't worry, people. <laughs> but folks can go and listen to the entire, all three movements on your website, so we'll point them at that. <laughs>
All right, so you've got this, again, one of these very hummable main motifs to start off that is sort of connected to the one from the first movement. I guess say a little about this as a third movement. What were you trying to do in terms of, I know that you reprise the main theme from the first movement toward the end. Is that sort of really the sole thing that really ties it together or are there others? It is in a way. I mean, in a way, that's really the biggest thing that ties it together and makes it like the third movement of this piece rather than its own standalone thing. But there's also different other things, like the fact that we start with a cadenza. You know, we start with the tuba by itself. That's not something I would probably do if this was a standalone movement, a standalone piece. It works, but it works as a way of getting from the second movement, which for anybody that doesn't go back and listen to it, the second movement is just strings and tuba. So it's a smaller instrumentation, a smaller group than the first movement or the third movement. And then we come back with just the tuba playing this line. And then everybody starts to mimic that line and come in in their own different way, their own rhythmic way. I really loved having the euphonium as the harmony instrument. The euphonium, along with the marimba, were up next to me for this movement, right up front. So it was really like a little power trio up in front. So is the euphonium, in terms of pitch, is that sort of what the C tuba is to the F tuba, the F tuba that you were playing is to the euphonium? Is it just like a a fifth up or so? Yeah, in terms of the pitch, it definitely is. In terms of the use... It's a B-flat tuba, an octave higher than the B-flat tuba. B-flat euphonium, okay. Yeah, so it's a B-flat euphonium, and it's it's a fourth higher than the, the F tuba that I would play on this concert. Although I actually was playing an E-flat tuba on this concert, but that's a, a, story, a different story. <laughs> <laughs> it was actually yeah, it was a brand new instrument for me. But <laughs> ah. The euphonium, I mean, it's, like I said before, I mean, it's essentially a tenor tuba. And some euphonium players will get mad at me for that, but... That's actually the technical term, but it has a similar sound. It's up and up an octave, so it's got you know more flexibility and it's higher. But we we're playing about a third apart for I think most of that duet. For me, it was just a really nice compliment in terms of the tone and the sound there. So you start out with this long legato theme, and again get in this very classical sounding these runs. You don't that you don't even have to. This is not a pop song. We can do as much of this as we want. You're used to Haydn. This is what goes on. And then add the euphonium harmonizing with the xylophone doing its thing and the low strings, just holding down a bass part, right? Yeah. And then the full orchestra comes in to, some of them are behind you, some of them are echoing you to fill in the spot when you've reached the, then they, you know, something can keep going. <laughs> so it gives a little more energy and force pushing through those. <laughs> this made me feel, you know, if I look at a score of Mahler or something, like, I don't know what the hell I'm looking at. I... <laughs> But maybe this is because it's your first one or, again, this dedication to making things that are accessible. But obviously, it's a lot of work to write all those damn parts, even if they're doing basically harmonizing each other or keeping to a couple the main melody and things harmonizing it. And then the echoing part and things harmonizing that or layering over that. But yes, it it all makes sense. Like I could follow the score very easily. Some composers would be offended by something like that, (laughs) thinking like, oh, this is simple. But that's ironically, it's a a hard thing for some composers to understand. But (laughs) the accessibility is something that's always been really important to me. And I think that's what people reacted positively to in this piece is that the whole concerto, I mean, it's it's in a classical setting and it's this big orchestra and this full sound and 
these different things going on, but it's also got that simplicity of a pop song you might hear on the radio where you get a motif or a theme or whatever you want to call it. I don't know how you would separate things out in this piece specifically because <laughs> I haven't tried doing that. But you get something and then you get it over and over again in different contexts or in different instruments, you know, and it just hammers home this melody. And by the end, you know, you've heard these things. And like you said, you get to the end of this third movement and you hear that thing come back from the first movement and even though it's just this repeated 12 notes or 11 notes or however many. Although I like how you would have, you know, when the other instruments come on, that you sort of just extend the theme by two notes or by four notes. Yeah, right. Right, exactly. We just have that progression going behind it. And so we have both this idea that we're coming back to something and we're Mm -hmm. wrapping up the piece. I mean, we're going right back to the beginning, (laughs) back to that theme. But then we're also, we're not quite done, but we're really driving to the end, you know, and we're building this. I mean, obviously, this is one thing you wouldn't necessarily see in most pop tunes is a full orchestra playing these diminished seventh chords and (laughs) things like that going towards the end and things that sound kind of crunchy and that you've got this resolution to tension, tension to resolution every like two measures. Well, I really like that big end where you're repeating the same thing on tuba a number of times with this progression of very theatrical chords. And then the whole thing ends, you know, it's like one of those Looney Tunes orchestrations or something, the final cadence. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's very dramatic, very dramatic. (laughs) The one thing that puzzled me a little bit about the arrangement is I understand starting, especially with the third verse with the long solo section and then having everything come in. But then after you've done this and had the marimba takeover for a while, then you come back Again, tuba solo in the middle. And it actually even goes kind of twice as long, I think, as the beginning did. So you can add in a little variations. Is this sort of a traditional element, structural element that I'm not as familiar with? Or what made you add that there? One of the things that happens a lot in like tuba concerti (laughs) is that you'll have like a big cadenza here or there. And it's always written out as what looks extremely technically challenging. And you're by yourself and you're playing like 128th notes for like 15 bars and blah, blah, blah. (laughs) And inevitably, you end up kind of slowing it down and playing it in a way that makes more sense on our instrument. And since you're not playing like a piano where you can do a glissando or something like that, you end up with something that looks pretty crazy, but ends up just being a melody that you can really accentuate. And what I was going for in, in a lot of this stuff in the concerto, there's stuff that's sort of whimsical. And this was kind of my play on that sort of cadenza. I mean, the same thing with the marimba solo. Like you go to the marimba solo and it's this fun lick, but it's also just like 16th notes for like... 16 measures (laughs) you know it's not like there's anything particularly crazy going on there um and then when yeah when the tuba comes back in with the solo line in the middle of this movement it's sort of a reset then you go on and you do the same thing but with little different things added in in each line the second time through before people finally come back in and it's almost sort of poking fun at that idea that you know this is a concerto so we have to have this cadenza here (laughs) you know Yeah, it lets you introduce a few different harmonic elements in that section, but not... Well, everybody stopped, so I could really go off in any direction that I want. And you could kind of... (laughs) In a jazz context or something, you know, it would completely leave the key and wander around and play as fast as you can until you're tired. (laughs) Right, right, exactly. Well, and it's a chance for the orchestra to take a little break so that when they come back in, it's obviously more effective it's a cheap trick for making the (laughs) making the second half of it seem more intense to you know to take that little bit of time and yeah i could go anywhere with that cadenza but i sort of stay right in that spot and we just reset and we (laughs) we get going again i think there's a lot of those a lot of those different things going on there it's also a chance for the tuba player although you're not really showing off with anything insanely technical or anything like that this is an extremely difficult movement because you're hanging out in the high register for seven minutes. I mean, you don't really stop being up in the high register and, you know, playing basically like long tones up there. (laughs) 
in a way, it's a chance to show off a little bit without it being the usual flash, which you get some of throughout this whole piece. But in this case, it's sort of challenging yourself as the player. Yeah, well, and some of the places that I thought, just looking at the score while listening to it, like, oh, that's not what I thought it is. That's just, you missed the note there. <laughs> like it does but that wasn't obvious. It wasn't obvious to me that you had missed the note while playing, you know, while just listening. It just sounds like that something else was written than what I thought, you know, a more smeary note. Than- Appreciate that. <laughs> yeah. No, that's very kind. One of the things that was really an important lesson for me as a player was to try and not really so much cover things up, but just to do everything as if it was intended. <laughs> so there are a couple spots in there, and I bet listeners going back and maybe listening to it a second time will catch some of them if they didn't already but there are definitely some spots in there where you know i'd get up to a a note and i'd end up hanging out on the seventh longer than i meant to in the scale (laughs) things like that or go to the the wrong partial or something like that and then the challenge is just to try and bring the confidence in the performance that makes it seem like it was what's written because this is a lot of repetition this is a lot of stuff that is meant to be messed around with a little bit in the performance i'm never really that concerned with Little changes like that, so long as, like you said, they don't come across as just like, oh, this was really done poorly. <laughs> well, it seems as being the soloist in front of an orchestra kind of, in some ways, has the best of both worlds in that. So if you're playing a solo thing, you know, I found this even if I go out and do solo gigs myself, singing and playing guitar, there's a sense of vertigo that, like, if I just stop, the whole thing is going to stop. Right. Whereas if I'm playing with a band, like you can kind of rely on them. You can sit back, whatever role you're providing, even if you're the drummer or whatever, you're relying on each other for the momentum to keep going. So that if you have that sense of vertigo and sort of watching yourself and isn't this strange, even if you did kind of completely stop for a second, it would still be going and you would snap back and you would continue to play, you know, so it wouldn't even be obvious to other people. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, I've heard, I was just talking to my last guest, Bill Bruford, was talking about the level of stress among classical musicians that in the ensemble parts, if you screw up one note, it's like the people on either side of you, they know. (laughs) And it's just a highly competitive professional environment and just how many of them have nervous breakdowns. (laughs) They're just really stressed. But if you're in the front, well, you're not matching anybody. You're kind of, you're the solo instrument. Interestingly enough that you would say that, in rehearsals for this, because coming in the very first time with any brand new piece, I mean, it was a little bit hard to get everybody on the same page in terms of what we were going for. Mm -hmm. Just took a little bit of time for everybody to feel comfortable with the music. I mean, it's not written in quite the same way as the other stuff that was on that concert (laughs) in terms of parts and in terms of the orchestration. But I stopped a few times throughout the time we were rehearsing it and just said, hey, guys, I don't really care if you play a wrong note like in a spot or if you (laughs) have to sit out for a little bit or if you have to, you know, regroup in any way or anything like that. I just want you to have fun with this. Like the whole point is to get up on stage and have a really good time and play with this frivolous attitude and have just have a lot of fun and then the audience will come along with us on that ride and to the point where i had said it so many times where i actually think somebody in the orchestra asked me he raised his hand and was like do you mean like you want us to improvise like are you telling us to change what's written (laughs) i said well no i don't i'm not telling you to do anything i just i think that we should come at this and don't worry if you make a mistake people around you aren't gonna judge you in terms of this specific piece which is probably not entirely accurate in most cases (laughs) but i just said hey let's you know let's just bring it and I'm going to miss notes. You're going to miss notes. Let's just do it together and have fun. (laughs) With the album that you were being very careful and using post-production and stuff to like get the definitive version, is it just when you're dealing with something like this, there just isn't going to be a definitive version. Just you've got this performance. It's nicely recorded. That's what you're going to get. Maybe you could get another orchestra to do it again or them to do it again. But it seems there's no practical way to 
okay, we're going to record this one and we're just going to, we're going to do it section by section and we're going to put them together in post and I'm going to listen really closely. And if somebody screwed up, we're going to do that four measures again. Like there's, and you know, with something like this, I mean, I wouldn't really want to, I mean, this is, there's a lot of repetition in this. There's a lot of coming back to the same thing. And I think part of what makes it fun is, you know, that it's a live performance. I don't know that this Mm -hmm. would be quite as cool as a really polished recorded version i mean i haven't tried that obviously but but listening to the live version i enjoy listening back to that and saying like all right you know i remember this this was really fun and i remember what this experience was like and i want to freeze that moment in time but the goal is that many more orchestras will eventually come around to playing this piece and that each time they do it that it's going to be different you know and there's going to be the soloist going to do different things in the cadenzas maybe they'll do more or less with the changes and I, for example, played quite a few things that aren't really written in the cadenzas throughout the whole piece. I mean, just because part of the cadenza situation is to improvise. So there are things that, you know, I'd go to a different spot in the key or anything like that, and then eventually just come back and hit some sort of flag so that Steve could get everybody on at the same place <laughs> when I come back and things like that. But I think this is definitely different to be doing a live performance as opposed to doing a recorded project. There's a level of ability to make things pristine and precise in the recording studio that you don't have when you're in a live situation, especially because rehearsal time is obviously at a premium with anybody. You know, with any orchestra is going to have not as much rehearsal time as maybe they would want if they were trying to make something as pristine as possible. It's just there has to be this element of being ready to go with what happens, you know, and being ready to fix your mistakes, not by worrying about them, but by moving on, you know, and going on to the next thing. And and I think it's another way of just showing our talking specifically about the post-production and all that that we did in the studio to try and make things really pristine, you know, and come back towards that classical precision, so to speak. It's another way of just showing the versatility of what we're doing. If you ever hear me play any of those songs from the CD live, they're not going to sound exactly like they did on the recording, that's for sure. Whether it's the tuba stuff or the vocal stuff, my piano parts are going to be wildly different from time to time, not in terms of like the core of it, but in terms of where I add faster notes and where I don't, or how big the chords are and things like that. And Bridget's singing is always going to be a little bit different. She'll take time in different places or she'll get to different dynamics. Or My tuba playing is always, I mean, almost notoriously variable. You know, I'm never going to play the same line the same way twice. You know, I'm not going to concern myself with saying like, okay, I did this this way once and if I don't do it the exact same way, people will be disappointed. Because to me, it's more disappointing if I got on stage and played it and you're like, oh, well, I could have listened to the recording and that would have been fine. that just sort of shows the slightly different attitude i think that we're taking than than most people do in in this situation (laughs) for better or worse the fact that you've made albums and you have pop music on your mind there's sort of an assumption with pop music even though pop is supposed to connote instantly accessible it's popular it's something that you can just get but at the same time we rely on the fact that you typically hear a pop song many, many times. Like that's sort of what becomes its essence that it needs to be able to stand up to listening to many times, but also it can be a little bit, there can be something that's kind of trickier to get about it because the assumption is that you're going to hear it multiple times. And then I end up kind of relying on that too much that you would like my live shows more if you just listen to the CD first, because then you'll kind of won't be like, what's that lyric? What's I'm trying to penetrate? What's going on? Like, you'll just be able to groove on it. 
and I guess the solution to that has typically been for, for me at least to try to make the whatever bonus you're going to get from listening to it multiple times have enough frosting on it so that even the first time will be nice. And I kind of see that the same thing in your Mendota that you're going to have that initial first riff. It might not be till you listen to the recording a few times that the places where there's a turnaround or that, that you kind of really register what's going on there other than okay, there's a B section, something different is happening. <laughs> and now we're back to the theme. And you were just saying with an orchestral piece, like it's specifically and certainly historically. And so, right, the conventions judging the whole thing. That's why so many of, if you know, Bach Haydn tunes or they'll just be just a repeat time. <laughs> we're just going to repeat this entire section because <laughs> right. you don't get to hear this. You don't get to go home and listen to this more. Like this is it. So hopefully if I play the whole thing for you twice, by the second time, you'll get it. Yeah. How does that play into your composition style in both the stuff that's aimed at an album versus the stuff that's aimed at a concert space? Again, we're sort of going for the best of both worlds. I want things to be, like you said, really easily accessible on the first listen. I mean, I think that happens with most of the stuff on the CD, at least from what people have told me in their own personal reviews of it. I don't know if that will be the case for everyone or not. But I also want, like you said, people listening to Mendota, even just being that short three minute duet, right? They'll listen back to it and, and they'll be like, oh, I didn't catch that. You know, and I think it'll happen too with this concerto. I mean, listening to the, the orchestra playing it, there are things where I where I would change the instrumentation in a spot or something like that or, or change the rhythm or maybe it builds larger than it did the last time we did this theme or things like that that I don't think would necessarily come through the first time. But for example, the first movement of this, if anybody goes and takes a listen to that over at my website, the first movement starts with this little brass fanfare that mm-hmm. I, I, mean, I think catches your ear Instantly. The review said something about how I was channeling my marching band background or something like that. (laughs) And well, that did occur to me when you're talking about being tolerant of mistakes and things like the marching band spirit seems much different than the classical orchestra spirit in terms of (laughs) drop notes. (laughs) I was in the UW marching band, which is a very rigorous experience. And there's an enormous amount of precision in everything you do. But where it's different in terms of the playing and the precision in the playing, is that you're playing for an audience that is going to pick out the melody. You're playing like popular songs, right? Mm -hmm. And you're playing in the open air. (laughs) You're not playing in a little concert hall, or a big concert hall for that matter. But instead of playing in a small space for like 40 people, you're playing in a big space for like 80,000 people at once. And so you don't need the same sort of precision in the playing because the visual is almost more important. And people will pick up the melody and everything from the dozens of trumpet players that are playing the same melody at the same time, you know? Well, and it was really effective when during the cadenza, you actually started breakdancing while playing that. That was... <laughs> yeah. The audience doesn't know that that's false. They, don't, they can't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so yeah, there's definitely a lot of those different things that come into this. And I think in terms of finding that balance between wanting to hear something many times, but also being happy with hearing it once. I think just like what you're talking about, I think that we really strive for that. We strive for that balance. We strive for it to be clear enough and pristine enough that a classical music buff will enjoy listening to this weird new tuba music, but also accessible enough and fun enough that the general public is going to listen to it and say, hey, yeah, you know, I didn't know the tuba could be so fun to listen to. <laughs> and I've actually had a lot of people say that about the CD, whether they went on and, you know, listened to the CD over and over in their car or whether they said that and then it sat on the shelf remains to be seen <laughs> based on how many people buy the next one. <laughs> but I think that's our goal. And so far, it seems successful that people on both sides of the aisle, I know it's kind of terrible of me to put it as such a dichotomy or put it as two worlds clashing heads or anything like that. But it seems like on both sides, both people that 
like classical music and really abhor popular music. <laughs> and then also people that listen to popular music and sort of abhor the ivory tower mentality and the classical music. Or rather just don't know anything about it, I think is much more right. common right now. What you get secondhand from movie scores and from things like Vivaldi's Four Seasons that are played everywhere, you know, <laughs> that you would not have to seek out. Right, exactly. And we want to play to both those audiences. You know, we want to reach a really broad group. We're not expecting every single person in the world to enjoy our music. That that would be more than anybody could expect. But I think with this last song, I think you could expect everyone to enjoy it. Disco tubas. <laughs> Do you want to give some introductory remarks about this last one? You added a drum machine. <laughs> yeah, so we have a drum machine in here. Um, it's... <laughs> I don't even, it's just it's just a fun riff. It's a fun sort of disco riff. Really, the most disco thing about it is probably the title. It's not necessarily disco. <laughs> yes. It's just that there is a drum machine. That's really the only disco thing. Yeah, there's a drum machine. There's definitely disco drums. The, the tuba lines are... This is another duet. This one was played on two F tubas, not a C and an F. And these are both me. I'm playing both the parts on this. Yeah, and I think the rest of it kind of speaks for itself. <laughs> All right. Well, here we go. Thank you so much for doing this. I'm sure you've inspired Thanks for having me. inspired many people to go out, take up the tuba, to know that not only do you have to get one very large, very expensive instrument, but probably three of them in, of different. <laughs> so if you really want to take it seriously. It's, yeah, it's not a cheap, uh, <laughs> not a cheap hobby. <laughs> cool. Have a great day. Absolutely. You too.
Thanks again to Pat. Very fun to stretch our discussion into classical music and to see what a young person today in the classical world, surrounded by pop music, no longer in an ivory tower, has to say about the connection between those two worlds. Again, to hear the entire concerto and other music and even look at some of the scores, go to patdoty.com. And I hope you'll also please go to nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. Subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already. Go to our iTunes store. Give us a nice rating and review that will really help get us some visibility. I'm currently four episodes behind in terms of what I have recorded versus what you are hearing right now. This was episode 26. I'm very excited for episode 27. Peter Knight, amazing violinist from the long-running British folk rock group Steel Eye Span. For 28, I'm talking to a sort of Joni Mitchell-esque songwriter, Jill Freeman, about her album influenced by fairy tales. Then for 29, I've recently spoken to Jason Seed, a Chicago musician. He's a jazz guitarist. But he also has classical writing chops, and so a lot of his work is him playing guitar along with a string quartet or written horn parts. It's a very interesting synthesis there. And finally, for episode 30, I'm super excited, since I just published the Bill Bruford episode that gave me a little bit of credibility in the world of drummer gods. And I got Paul Wordico, who used to play drums with Pat Metheny, and his partner David Kane. They are in a improvisational trio, Wordico Kane Gray. That's an amazing interview. I've got a lot of other equally impressive ones scheduled. Things are really beginning to take off. Hope you stick around. Please go like our Facebook page. And it really helps if you go to the posts on that page and share them on your own wall. Share this interview or the other interviews you see there for artists of the style that you like. And by all means, if you've got feedback, if you want to recommend a guest, or if you are a potential guest, write to me at mark at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. I couldn't be more thrilled to be talking to these people, and I'm always interested in new perspectives, new styles of writing. I hope hearing these folks has been inspiring to you as they have been for me, and I might as well say that my band, the most recent iteration of which just came together this last spring, also has its own Facebook page if you look up Mark Lint's Dry Folk, which is linked along with many songs from marklint.com if you want to hear where I'm coming from. Until next time, keep on musicin'. This is Mark Lintemeyer signing off. Thank you.